Kitsley in the field of hepatitis research, and she's going to talk to us this morning about HIV and hepatitis C virus co-infection. Debica? Thank you, Connie, for that introduction, and thank you to Drs. Benson and Mitsuyasu and the organizing committee for um, inviting me to speak. So I have the pleasure of talking about HIV and hepatitis C co-infection, and I think it's one of the most exciting areas uh, now. As many of you know, we can cure hepatitis C, right? So in uncomplicated patients, 95% and higher cure rates. So indeed, a very exciting time. So here are my um, disclosures. And here are the learning objectives. So after attending this presentation, you will be able to describe the common regimens that we use to treat hepatitis C in HIV and hep C co-infection. You're going to be able to describe the, H the hepatitis C regimens um, in specific treatment populations, like those who are treatment experienced in cirrhotics. And we're also going to be able to list key drug-drug interactions, which I think ends up being one of the, the cruxes of treatment in HIV and hep C co-infection. So can I see by a show of hands, uh, this is a very experienced group of HIV providers, how many of you are also treating hepatitis C in your practice? Oh, quite a few. Okay, you're going to keep me on my toes. Well, good. Okay. So why do we care about HIV and hepatitis C co-infection? So as many of you know, between 15 to 30% of our HIV-infected patients also have hepatitis C, and it matters. Liver disease is accelerated in HIV and hep C co-infection, three times greater risk of progression to cirrhosis or decompensated liver disease than hepatitis C alone. And antiretroviral therapy does seem to slow progression, but not fully. There is still increased mortality and hepatic decompensation amongst those who are on ARV treatment um, who are HIV and hep C co-infected uh, compared to even HIV, uh, compared to hep C mono-infected. Thankfully, though, therapy is effective, and so as many of you know, the therapies that are now available for hepatitis C are equally effective in HIV and hep C co-infection. And therapy is effective. It does reduce these clinical complications. And that's shown here on the graph here, the Kaplan-Meier curve, that demonstrates in an HIV and hep C co-infected population who were cirrhotic at the time of interferon-based therapy, the reduction in hepatic decompensation rates between those who had an SVR and those who had non-SVR. So again, therapy is effective and it does reduce uh, clinical complications. So let's jump into what the therapies are. So many of you hear the term DAAs, that stands for Direct Acting Antiviral Agents, and we have several classes of DAAs. We have the protease inhibitors. Um, and if you don't learn anything else from this, this is one of the most important things to learn. This is how we remember the naming of the, um, of the, of the agents. So when you see a Previr, that's a protease inhibitor. The other class is an NS5A inhibitor. And so you think of um, AS. So uh, sometimes I think I'm dyslexic, and so that's a nice way to, to remember that. So the SVR is for NS5A. And then for the nucleotide inhibitors, you think of the uh, B for NS5B nucleotide and non-nucleotide inhibitors, so the Buvir. And the nomenclature has actually stayed constant. So these are different classes of agents that work at different parts of the life cycle. And they, the combinations of these agents take advantage of the differences in potency and resistance barriers. So the protease inhibitors and NS5A inhibitors have high potency and low resistance barriers. And the most common 
NS5B nucleotide inhibitor has intermediate potency but a very high resistance barrier. So this is what leads to the combinations that we see. Um, and I'll, I'll borrow a phrase from Tripp, who I think just left, and that is, so why are these combinations the way, uh, uh, combined in the way that they are? Oh, wait, that's what the drug company had um, in, um, as they were developing them. And so in general, we, we do see certain trends among these DAA regimens. So we see NS5A and NS5B combinations. So that is Declatosphere and Sofosivir is one regimen, Lidibosphere and Sofosivir and Velpatosphere and Sofosivir, which are one pill once a day regimens. And then we also see on the bottom here, protease inhibitor and NS5A combinations at the grisopravir and elbosphere, and then finally, uh, multiple drug uh, combinations um, using the paratepravir boosted with ritonavir, ambitosphere and NS5A inhibitor, and then disabuvir and non-nucleotide NS5B inhibitor, and that's the, uh, that's the heretofore known as the PRO-D regimen. So these are the common regimens. And so what are the treatment, what are the pre-treatment questions that we ask before we start therapy? So there are several. So hepatitis C genotype is a very important question to ask. Remember, there are six genotypes. Genotypes one through three are the most common in the US. Genotype one in particular is the most common. And the reason that matters is because the type of genotype you have is going to determine the hepatitis C regimen that you're given. In addition to genotype, specifically for genotype 1, we worry about subtype. So if they're genotype 1A or 1B. And the reason that matters is because genotype 1A seems to have a lower barrier to resistance. And so you have to construct the regimens a little bit differently for some of the hepatitis C regimens. So remember, genotype 1A versus 1B. Then also importantly, which I think sometimes many of us ID clinicians can forget, it's really important to be able to stage disease, liver disease in these patients. And there are two reasons to do that. One is to determine whether or not they have cirrhosis, because that is what is going to also dictate both the choice and composition of a regimen that you're going to be um, selecting. And secondly, they really need to be followed long-term for complications like hepatocellular carcinoma and stage liver disease, and they need to have screening in place for those. Once you, have, once you know that you have to assess for liver disease, you also want to know how you're going to assess. So are you using the common, um, the, the quick and dirty blood markers that we have available, or are you using other tests uh, that, that measure hepatic fibrosis through either um, through algorithms, the FibroSpect or the FibroSure? Have you done a liver biopsy? Or how many of you have access to transient elastography? Just out of curiosity, another show of hands. Okay, quite a few. So now an FDA-approved way of measuring um, of liver fibrosis. You also want to know what their prior hepatitis C treatment was, because that, again, is going to determine what regimen and the composition of regimen you can give them. Did they have a direct acting antiviral before as part, of their, um, uh, as part of their treatment? Did they have side effects? Were there other concomitant medications that may have compromised through drug-drug interactions your response? You also want to know their vaccination status because they do need to be vaccinated if they're hep A non-immune and hep B non-immune. And specifically when we talk about hepatitis B, 
there have been a number of reactivations of hepatitis B while on hepatitis C therapy. And so it is very important to know the hepatitis B status of your patient before you're starting therapy. That's because of the a viral interference that occurs such that when you are able to cure the hepatitis C, the hepatitis B is kind of un, untamped and is able to reactivate. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. Their HIV status, do they have a history of drug resistance? That's going to impact whether or not or how comfortable you feel in changing their regimen um, if you need to change regimens for drug-drug interactions. And then medications. I still think drug-drug interactions are one of the most important things that we need to worry about in HIV and hepatitis C co-infection. And it's also important to assess the willingness of an individual to change ARB regimens. I mean, how many of you have patients who, when you're trying to treat hepatitis C, do not want to really tr change their HIV regimen for, for valid reasons? They're comfortable with it. And then finally, I think this sometimes gets lost, although ribavirin is increasingly not being used as much as we once used to, but remember, ribavirin is teratogenic. And so patients need to be counseled that if, if it's a woman who's using ribavirin, they absolutely must use two forms of contraception. And even if it's a male partner of a woman of childbearing age, they also have to be um, counseled about using two forms of contraception. And that has to extend for six months after the end of treatment um, because of the concern for teratogenicity. Okay, so a few more words about reactivation of hepatitis B in those who are initiating DAA therapy. So the FDA presented a couple of dozen of case, uh, a couple of dozen cases of hepatitis B reactivation, um, and um, there have been a number of studies that have also examined this. And so this has led the ASLD IDSA guidance and also the VA guidance to. Um, recommend assessing everybody for hepatitis B infection, obviously, which is, should be done anyway, but in those who are surface antigen positive to check for HBV DNA, and if they meet criteria for hepatitis B treatment based on ASLD, ASLD guidelines to initiate treatment. If they don't, you can monitor HBV DNA, on, uh, monitor HBV DNA while they're on therapy. I think the trickier issue comes to those patients who have just core antibody positivity. So if you remember, that's just exposure. So they don't have surface antigen, but they have just core. And it's harder to know what to do with them. But what we recommend is that patients with that profile, core antibody positivity, be monitored while on therapy with um, monitoring of ALT and for, a, and for a high index of suspicion of having HPV reactivation if you see an unexplained ALT elevation. The VA guidelines actually take it a step further, and they recommend that in some of the, to consider in some core antibody positive patients to actually do baseline HPV DNA um, screening. Okay, so this is a reminder for me to remind you that obviously drug-drug interactions are critical and there are excellent resources out there. Nobody can remember all of these drug-drug interactions. And the ones that I turn to, the websites that I turn to most frequently are the University of Liverpool uh, website, which is featured here, has an excellent interactive um, interface um, to assess drug-drug interactions. And the ASLD IDSA guidance has a very nice uh, graph of drug-drug interactions that I'll also be showing here. Okay, so let's jump to our first case. So this is a 55-year-old HIV and hep C co-infected patient. He's on dolutegravir, abacavir, and 3TC. He has no history of HIV um, resistance. 
He's HCV treatment naive, his physical exam is unremarkable, and on his laboratory examinations, you see that he has a low-ish HCV viral load, his genotype is 1A, and when you calculate his Fib4 and APRI scores, which are non-invasive methods of assessing fibrosis, you see that he has a low likelihood of having um, severe liver disease. You obtain a transient elastography, because you have access to it, and you see that he has F2 disease, which is mild to moderate disease. And now you're, posed, now you're being posed the question, what regimen are you going to pick for him? So which of the following is the correct regimen? Is it sofosphere and lidiposphere for eight weeks? Is it sofosphere and lidiposphere for 12 weeks? Is it the Pro-D regimen for eight weeks? Brizoprevir, elbosphere for 24 weeks? or sofosphere and velpatosphere for eight weeks. It's such a feast of choices, right? It's not coming up, oh no, okay. Show of hands, pretend you did not see the next slide. So sofosphere, lidiposphere, eight weeks. Come on, some of you pretend, okay. Sofosphere, lidiposphere, 12 weeks, everybody. Okay, well, <laughs> all right, well, let's talk about what's, what, is, what is the right answer. So, sofosphere lidiposphere was, it was correct for 12 weeks, and I'm going to assume that most of you got that. Sofosphere and lidiposphere for eight weeks is not correct. That was, um, the, it's too short of a regimen, and we'll talk about that in a second. Uh, Pro-D for eight weeks, too short of a regimen. Grisoprevir elbosphere, 24 weeks, too long, and if you, you, you have to remember to do uh, baseline NS5A resistance, and SOFL eight weeks, too short of a regimen. So, the, what we were trying to get at here was the duration of um, therapy. And so this is a, a pictorial of the currently available HCV regimens in non-serotic patients, uh, specifically for genotype 1 patients. And I should have said from the outset, I'm focusing on genotype 1 because it's the most common um, uh, subtype or, uh, in the U.S. Um, and so really, I don't want you to memorize this, but what I want you, the take-home point is that by and large, 12 weeks is the treatment choice that you're going to recommend in treatment-naive non-serotic patients. There are some caveats. So if they have, if you're going to use grisoprevir elbosphere, you have to do some NS5A testing. We'll talk about that in a moment. Um, and for the Pro-D regimen, you may have to add uh, ribavirin as well. But by and large, 12 weeks is what you should be able to use. So <clears throat> let's talk about sofosphere and lidiposphere in HIV and hepatitis C co-infection. So this was studied in a large trial of uh, HIV hep C co-infected individuals for 12 weeks. Very importantly, note that eight weeks was not studied in this cohort. And the overall SVR, or sustained virologic response rate, what we call a cure, was 96%. Interestingly, there were 10 relapses, and all of them occurred in African-American patients. And the reason for that has not well been understood, but it has been duplicated um, in other large VA cohorts uh, and other large cohorts where you look at um, shorter duration of therapy. And having uh, an African-American ethnicity does seem to impact therapy uh, cure rates when you are using um, shorter durations of therapy. Um, and then the key points for sofosphere and lidiposphere are really around the drug-drug interactions. And we'll talk about this a little bit more, but uh, there are drug-drug interactions with proton pump inhibitors, tenofovir, and remember, um, sofosphere and amiodarone cannot be co-administered because of a concern for Brady arrhythmias. And sofosphere really shouldn't be used in renal insufficiency because of very high concentrations of sofosphere um, in this group.
Okay, so some of you, before you saw the answer, may have picked eight weeks, right? And so, you're, and so you're saying, I'm not demented. I know you can use eight weeks in certain populations, and you're right. And so the data for this comes from a large trial in hepatitis C mono-infection that looked at eight or 12 weeks of therapy. And indeed, it turned out that if you had a viral load above 6 million and were given eight weeks of therapy, you did have a high relapse rate, 10% there. But if your hep C viral load was below 6 million, um, the relapse rate for eight weeks was very low, only 2%. And so that's what led to the recommendation or the suggestion in the package insert that you could use eight weeks of therapy in hepatitis C mono-infection in treatment-naive, non-serotic patients with a low HCV viral load. But wait, that did not apply to HIV co-infected. Remember, because that group was not studied in this trial. And also importantly, from another trial looking at a similar combination, NS5B and NS5A, Decladosphere and Sofosivir, that did look at eight weeks in HIV and hep C co-infection, there was a substantially lower rate of response, 76%. So this is why we don't recommend eight weeks. Hint, that's going to be uh, perhaps on one of your questions. OK, let's talk about another regimen. This is the um, Pro-D regimen that um, some, I think, payers are still um, uh, mandating. The important key points about this is that for genotype 1A, remember I said that that genotype had a lower barrier to resistance? So you need to add ribavirin for genotype 1A, treatment-naive, non-serotic patients. And that's evidenced here by the difference in the PEARL-4 study there, which showed a 7% SVR difference rate in those who did and did not receive ribavirin. So ribavirin is very important. And also importantly, for all protease inhibitors, um, because of metabolism using cytochrome P450 enzymes, it should be used with caution. I mean, actually, it's contraindicated in child's B and C cirrhosis and actually should be used with caution in child's A cirrhosis. Um, and so uh, a reminder that that should not be used in, um, in child's B and C cirrhotics. And then I list some other drug-drug interactions that are really there for your um, interest. <clears throat> and then the next regimen um, that was FDA-approved was uh, grisoprevir elbosphere, protease inhibitor, NS5A inhibitor. And it was examined in 12- and 16-week regimens. And the most important take-home point here is that for this regimen, baseline NS5A resistance matters. So in HIV, we're used to baseline resistance testing. But in hepatitis C, this is, for genotype 1, the only regimen in which you need to do um, in treatment-naive patients, baseline NS5A resistance testing. And that's because you can see a difference there in the, this is the C-EDGE treatment-naive study. There was a difference of about <clears throat> seven points between um, genotype 1A patients, and that was largely due to NS5A resistance. The other key points about this regimen is it has been studied in chronic kidney disease and in dialysis. There was a, there was a study, the Sea Surfer study, um, that examined um, this regimen um, in chronic kidney disease, 76% of whom were on hemodialysis. And so this is one of my go-to regimens for chronic kidney disease. It is also a regimen that I often turn to when there are drug-drug interactions with sofosivir lidiposphere or sofosivir velpatosphere. Again, remember, it's a protease inhibitor, and so it's contraindicated in child's B and C cirrhosis. Okay, so this is a slide that brings home the point about NS5A resistance. Hint, hint, that's also going to be a question. 
um, or on the question. And so this is an integrated analysis looking at the difference between those who had NS5A resistance and those who didn't in those who received uh, 12 weeks versus um, 16 weeks plus ribavirin. And you can see the, the very high difference, 98%, compared to 70% among those patients who had these resistance mutations that confer a five-fold change in susceptibility. And so this is what led to the recommendation that we need to do baseline NS5A resistance testing, particularly looking for these resistance mutations before you prescribe this regimen. So if it's present, you can prescribe it, but you need to add ribavirin and extend to 16 weeks. Okay, and just to mention about cefosibuvir-valpatismir, another regimen that's going to be av that's available to you. It's a pan-genotypic regimen was studied in HIV and Hep C co-infection, very high overall SVR12 rates. Again, drug-drug interactions, valpatismir and efavirenz are contraindicated to be co-administered because efavirenz will decrease the valpatismir levels, and there are also issues with tenofovir and valpatismir. And then finally, decladosphere and sofosphere, which may also be um, which may also be available to you. Again, the key points here are there the difference in the eight-week SVR reg, uh, the SVR rate versus 12 weeks, which led to the recommendation to not use eight weeks in HIV and Hep C co-infection using these uh, combinations. But the interesting thing about decladosphere is you can actually dose adjust the decladosphere, um, and, and so that makes it sometimes a friendly regimen to use um, in HIV-infected patients. You decrease it to 30 milligrams with boosted atazanavir but you have to increase it to 90 milligrams with efavirenz or etravirine, but you can use it with these regimens, which is different from some of our other regimens. Okay, so let's go to case two. This is now, we're making it a little bit more difficult. He's 55 years old, HIV hep C co-infection, now on a boosted darunavir tenofovir FTC regimen. He's treatment experienced, failed a protease inhibitor and pegylated interferon uh, regimen in, in 2013. <clears throat> he has no NS5A Resistance, he's on omeprazole, 20 milligrams a day. His labs are remarkable for the following. He has an HCV RNA of 5 million. His genotype is 1A. His Fib4 score is elevated, suggesting he has advanced fibrosis. And when you get your transient elastography, it also has, shows advanced fibrosis. And so uh, what are your options here? Okay, should we try again, Kristen? No. Oh, raise hands. Okay. So what are you going to do? Um, Sofosphere lidiposphere for 12 weeks with no additional renal monitoring? Okay, so phosphorylidiposphere and ribavirin for 12 weeks with no additional renal monitoring. Grisoprevir, elbosphere, and ribavirin for 12 weeks. Okay, change to elvitigravir, COBE, uh, TAF, FTC, and then soft lidiposphere for, and ribavirin for 12 weeks. Change to elvitigravir, COBE, TAF, FTC, and then soft valpatosphere for 12 weeks. Okay, a handful. Well, I should have said there were two right answers here. And so, um, so why are these answers correct or incorrect? So, cefosphorylidiposphere for 12 weeks with no additional renal monitoring. In treatment-experienced patients, you actually need, uh, treatment-experienced cirrhotic patients, one needs to add ribavirin. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Um, but you do need additional renal monitoring because of drug-drug um, interactions between tenofovir and um, lidiposphere. Sofosphere, lidiposphere, and ribavirin for 12 weeks with no additional renal monitoring is actually the correct regimen, but again, you need renal monitoring because of the drug-drug interaction. 
Rosopivir, Elbosphere, and ribavirin for 12 weeks is the correct duration, but there is a drug-drug interaction between the boosted darunavir and the grizopivir. Hint, that may also be on your post-test question. Um, and then both of these, the changing to a TAF-based regimen um, with either soft-led riba for 12 weeks or soft-vel for 12 weeks are correct answers. I actually just wanted to see what the audience uh, would do. So here is the breakdown of treatment choices in patients who are cirrhotic, treatment naive, and treatment experienced. Again, genotype one. The um, regimens in gray font are the alternative regimens. The ones in um, black font are the recommended regimens. And again, the take-home point here is you can see that not every regimen is 12 weeks here. So once we start getting into the more difficult-to-treat populations, you either have to add ribavirin or extend um, out therapy, or do a combination of both. So let's talk about why the cefosphere and lidoposphere for 12 weeks was not the right answer. So this is a study that looked at 12 weeks versus 24 weeks in treatment experience patients, 20% of whom were cirrhotic. And as you can see here, oh, this looks a little funny. Um, so as you can see here, in the 12-week regimen, those patients who were cirrhotic um, and only received 12 weeks had an 86% SVR12 rate, and that is a no longer acceptable SVR12 rate, um, compared to those uh, who got 24 weeks where the SVR12 rates were 100%. And so that led um, to the examination of a um, trying to shorten the duration of therapy in patients who were cirrhotic, treatment experienced, by adding ribavirin. And so this was a study that looked at um, Sophosphere lidoposphere for 24 weeks compared to sophosphere and lidoposphere and ribavirin for 12 weeks, um, and indeed um, the stain virologic response rates were equivalent. And so that's why we can recommend this regimen um, uh, in um, in treatment experienced cirrhotic patients. Okay, so let's review a couple of key drug-drug interactions in HIV and hepatitis C co-infection. So I'm going to talk a little bit about tenofovir and boosted PIs and lidoposphere vilpatosphere, proton pump inhibitors, HIV protease inhibitors, and hepatitis C protease inhibitors, and then a general comment about efavirenz, because I still think that many of us still have patients who are on efavirenz-containing regimens. <clears throat> so what is the issue with um, tenofovir and uh, boosted PIs in lidoposphere and vilpatosphere? So um, you have two um, graphs here, one on the top um, looking at sophosphere lidoposphere, and on the bottom looking at sophosphere vilpatosphere. And what you see here are different concentrations. So this is, tenofovir is on the y-axis. On um, the top axis, you have different populations, HIV and hep C co-infected, HIV negative um, healthy volunteers, those who, and those who are receiving lidoposphere and sofosivir, and on the bottom, who are receiving FTC and tenofovir with different ARV regimens. And what you see in the darker graded box, although you actually can't see it that well there, are the, the safe values um, of tenofovir, for which we have established um, uh, safety data, renal safety data. And what you can see is that when you co-administer boosted PIs with tenofovir, the tenofovir levels are elevated. But when you administer tenofovir alafenamide with um, a booster like elvitigravir, uh, Kobe, uh, and TAF, those levels are not elevated there, shown by the arrow. And we see similar things with sofosivir vilpatosphere. So again, higher levels with the boosted, higher tenofovir levels with the boosted PI regimens 
compared to very low tenofovir levels when co-administered with TAF. And so this is what led to the recommendation to have additional renal monitoring when patients are on either lidipasphere or valpatosphere-containing regimens with tenofovir and a boosted PI-containing regimen. Okay, let's talk about proton pump inhibitors now. So I've, if, if you're like me, I think it's like water. I feel like every one of my patients is on a proton pump inhibitor. And so this really matters when we're talking about lidiposphere and valpatosphere. They need an acidic environment to be absorbed. And so when you look at the changes in, the, in concentrations of the, the um, lidiposphere or valpatosphere in the context of proton pump inhibitors, you can see that the Cmax and AUC for both lidiposphere and valpatosphere are substantially reduced, and valpatosphere more so. And so the question is, does this impact um, treatment outcomes? Yes, it does, actually. So in a large real-world observational cohort, when you looked at those who received a proton pump inhibitor and a sofosivir lidipasivir containing regimen and those who didn't, SVR12 rates were lower in those who received the proton pump inhibitor. This was further expanded upon in another cohort, and it looked really like it was the BID dosing of the proton pump inhibitor that was most important, but nevertheless, it's important to remember that proton pump inhibitors may impair your overall uh, treatment response. So they're not contraindicated, but what can you do? These are the recommendations for um, modifications. So for proton pump inhibitors, you don't want to exceed a dose of uh, a comparable dose of omeprazole 20 milligrams a day. And um, you, for sofosphere you have to take the omeprazole simultaneously under fasted conditions, while for sofosphere valpatosphere, and take it with food four hours before. I personally, this is a Debica Bhattacharya approach. I try and stay away from proton pump inhibitors in sofosphere, lidiposphere, and soft valve containing regimens. And I will, if they need a proton pump inhibitor, I will usually actually try a different regimen if we can do that. Um, Okay, so this is this, the ASLD-IDSA drug-drug interaction checkerboard, and again, we're not going to go through all of these drug-drug interactions. I just want to highlight um, a few important um, key points. So remember that hepatitis C protease inhibitors and HIV protease inhibitors, because of um, uh, cytochrome P450 metabolism, have drug-drug interactions. So just be careful most are contraindicated. There are some allowed. Um, so just be careful when you're, when you're using HCVPIs with HIVPIs. <clears throat> and similarly, efavirenz, the important thing to remember, again, velpatosphere and efavirenz are contraindicated because of um, the decreased levels of velpatosphere. And also, um, it cannot be used um, with, uh, efavirenz cannot be used with um, the protease inhibitors. Okay, um, and then the other important point to make about the drug-drug interactions is decladosphere. So just remember again that that is your friendly kind of modifiable drug. Um, you would decrease it to 30 if you're using etazanivir boosted ritonavir and increase it to 90 if you're using efavirenz or etravirine. Okay, so in the last uh, few minutes, case three. So this is another co-infected patient um, on an ancient regimen of efavirenz, tenofovir, and FTC. Uh, no HIV failure history. He's cirrhotic. He failed um, soft lidiposphere and ribavirin for 12 weeks. True story. His physical exam is unremarkable. You obtain the following test. Again, low viral load, HCV genotype 1A. Again, he's cirrhotic, so a high uh, FIB4 score. So... Um, I'm not, I didn't put a question there, but the, but the question is always, so what do we do with these patients who failed um, NS5A-containing therapy? 
So the first thing to do, the first thing that I would say is, is that if they don't need therapy right away, I would wait because there are next generation agents that are going to become available. You also want to check for resistance-associated variants that um, in, in both the protease inhibitor and NS5A inhibitor classes um, because that will help determine what you can treat them with. And if you must treat them, you could use a nucleotide-based uh, dual uh, DAA regimen for 24 weeks, probably with ribavirin unless it's contraindicated, or perhaps a triple or a quad uh, DAA regimen could be considered. And so, uh, so what is it about resistance that is, that is concerning? So this is no, um, no surprise to us as HIV practitioners. Um, NS, baseline NS5A resistance does predict subsequent evolution of resistance, and that's what's shown here on the left um, pie chart. So in those patients um, who received cefosphere and lidipasphere who had baseline resistance demonstrated there by the blue, um, when they looked at patients who failed this regimen, almost 100% of them had NS5A resistance. So NS5A resistance emerges on therapy. It's more likely if you have baseline NS5A resistance. And the other kind of scary thing about NS5A resistance, which is not true about protease inhibitor resistance, is that it persists. And so it persists. You can see here um, in this bar graph that when you go, even when you go out to 96 weeks, that's a proportion of patients with NS5A resistance at failure who still have NS5A resistance, 86% of patients. So all is not lost. The cavalry is coming. We do have um, better regimens coming down the pike. So there are... Um, a triple combination of cefosivir, vilpatosphere, adding a protease inhibitor. This was a regimen that was studied in NS5A resistant patients and a very high overall SVR12 rate, 96%. Um, and then similarly, there is another regimen of, again, uh, protease inhibitor, NS5A inhibitor, and NS5B inhibitor um, using a slightly longer duration, 16 weeks plus ribavirin, 24 weeks. Again, high overall SVR12 rates. Um, and then, um, to make sure everybody's included, um, another regimen, glosaprevir and pibentrosphere, uh, um, which was looked at in 12 and 16 weeks. Um, and overall, um, high-ish SVR12 rates, although it looked like you really needed the 16 weeks and not the 12 weeks uh, that are available with other regimens. So um, in summary, hepatitis C cure is associated with reductions in mortality in hepatitis C and HIV and hep C co-infection. So very important to treat all of your patients with HIV and hep C co-infection. SVR12 rates are similar in HIV and hep C co-infection. Eight-week regimens should not be used with currently available agents in, um, in HIV and hep C co-infection because of those lower overall response rates. HCV protease inhibitors are contraindicated in child's B and C cirrhosis, so a reminder to assess for cirrhosis, and after you assess for cirrhosis, assess their stage of cirrhosis, and that drug-drug interactions remain a critical part of the discussions that we need to have with our co-infected patients. And I'll stop there. Thank you. Oh, so many questions. Okay. <clears throat> oh, 
Oh, okay. This is a really important point. So um, the question is, how long do you monitor cirrhosis cures with hepatitis C? So the answer is until we have more data, forever. So my my feeling or my um, say, my mantra is at this point, once a cirrhotic, always a cirrhotic. And so what are we assessing for? We're assessing for HCC surveillance. So they need um, ultrasounds and alpha proteins, uh, plus or minus alpha proteins, but ultrasounds every six months. And they also need to have their usual variceal screening, so EGD two to three years. Um, and that needs to continue um, for lifetime until we have more data. Um, Okay, so then the, this other question is, is there some flexibility in the definition of decompensation, e.g. child's PU7 is considered decompensated? It precludes the use of protease inhibitors, so this is a very experienced provider, <clears throat> and requires a transplant eval prior to the use of MS5A and MS5B medications. Is there any wiggle room for patients with this low level of cirrhosis? And, you know, so I think, um, so two important points that are brought up here. So again, the reminder, child's B and C cirrhosis, protease inhibitors um, should not be used. And what they are um, asking is, does, um, ha do they need a liver transplant evaluation prior to treatment? And I, I would say that in a decompensated cirrhotic, they should all be being referred to a liver transplant center to be evaluated because the concern is that in some cases, we have seen some paradoxical worsening of, um, of um, liver um, decompensation while on therapy. And the reasons are not clear, whether that's just the progression of natural disease, whether there's another phenomenon going. And so you really want to be hooked in with a hepatologist and a liver transplant center to help you manage them if things go south. So I know we're a little over, so I think I'll, I'll stop there with the questions, but I'm gonna be available in the back for a couple minutes. Oh, we're not over? We've got some time? Okay. Well, then let me continue. Um, are there any non-ribavirin regimens you feel confidence with in patients who have failed pegylated interferon in the past? The answer is yes. Can I use my, um, can I backtrack? No. I'm going to say no. yes. So yes, absolutely. So in fact, um, when we talk about treatment experienced, we subdivide them into pegylated interferon ribavirin treatment experienced, protease inhibitor and pegylated interferon ribavirin treatment experienced for gene type 1 specifically, and then NS5A, right? And so when you are talking about just pegylated interferon ribavirin, you can use cefosivir lidiposphere, um, in uh, patients who failed um, pegylated interferon without ribavirin, if they're treatment naive and non-serotic, you can use sofosivir vilpatosphere without ribavirin. So yes, there are regimens. Yes. So I'm challenged by the height of the microphone here, but... Uh, Me too, Connie. I, feel I know. I can barely see you behind the podium. The... Uh, so the question I had relates to uh, hepatocellular carcinoma. And uh, I've been told sort of wildly disparate responses to this question, so I thought I'd get your viewpoint. Do these curative regimens also eliminate the risk of hepatocellular carcinoma with hepatitis C? So that is a point of a lot of controversy. And so what Dr. Benson is referring to is... <coughs> 
about a year ago, shortly after the advent, obviously, of DAAs, there were a couple of European groups that in small cohorts reported what they were describing as a surprisingly high rate of HCC recurrence after treatment with DAAs. And um, other, there were uh, a few European groups that reported that, and that really raised a concern of whether treatment and cure with DAAs uh, was different in some way than treatment and cure with interferon, because interferon may alter, because it's an immune adjuvant, may alter the intrahepatic milieu um, differently than DAAs. I would say that that is still an unsettled question, but with late-breaking data actually from EASL, which was just last week, that's a big European liver conference, I think we can say with a little bit more confidence that it's probably not the DAAs. So there was one large meta-analysis that was done by an Australian group, and it compared patients in the interferon era and the DAA era, and it did not look like there was a difference in HCC occurrence rates or recurrence rates um, after DEA treatment. However, there were certain predictors, and, that were, and those were patients with cirrhosis in particular were at greatest risk of having HCC recurrence, as one might expect. There was another really great um, um, uh, abstract that came out of the UCSF group, which is a big liver transplant center. And um, the problem with a lot of the other um, cohorts was that they didn't have a control group. And the UCSF group actually had a control group of patients who were and were not treated with DAAs. And in their, in their um, abstract, they found that there was not a difference actually in HCC recurrence rates in those patients who were, who were not treated with DAAs and who were treated with DAAs. So, I mean, I do think that the, there is still equipoise because the, I think the initial concerns can't be discounted. But I think that what may be happening is that in the interferon days, we just didn't treat um, cirrhotics um, as much because of the concerns of, of decompensation. And so now that we're treating more cirrhotics, we, we just have a little bit more follow-up um, of these patients, and it's a natural history, unfortunately, of disease progression. But a great question. <laughs>